0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by two very special guests, Imad Akund, uh, co-founder and CEO of Mercury, and Jude Gamilla, co-founder and CEO of Golden. Uh Jude, Imad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So one of the things I want to talk to you about, I mean, we're doing this episode at the end of March. Uh coronavirus is obviously on, on everyone's uh, minds. Uh let's talk about some of the second or third order effects or some of the things uh or conversations that we're not having but but should should be having. Uh Jude. Wh- wh- why don't we start with, with with you? What's most interesting or important or you know top of mind for you when when we talk about this? Yeah,
1: I think I think what's top of mind for me in terms of these other order effects are is the information lag that we're seeing between the conversations occurring on Twitter between all these different different people from technologists to epidemiologists to modelers and amateur hardware builders and software people and concerned medical people to to the institutions that we have that. We have entrusted with large budgets, like $4.5 billion for the Who and, or, or more, to go and solve these problems for us um, in the first place. And what we're seeing is a lag between their policies and um, statements and information and what is getting worked out in real time between all these people. So there's an information lag problem. There's an problem, and there's a institutional crisis, I think, and a, an administration crisis as well. In terms of what people are asking to be done, and they would be two main main effects that I'd, I'd love to talk about.
0: Well, Ahmad, why, why don't you talk about what's most interesting to you? Put it on the table, and then we'll we'll dive uh, dive deep into all the topics.
2: Yeah, I mean, I try to be like positive and optimistic about it. I think you know, I think we all imagined that there was someone at the top, uh, maybe at the CDC or something, that had like these kind of really cool screens where they'd done like scenario analysis of like every response they could have and like how. Yeah, when you see it in movies, it's like, this is this many people <laughs> will get infected, this many will die if we do this kind of thing. I don't know, maybe they just don't do that, but like, it doesn't seem like they do it, right? Like they're not at all, like even now, I think it's like around 50% of the US is on the lockdown and I haven't seen anyone propose a real plan for how we get out of this, right? Like there isn't like, let's deploy masks to everyone, let's do testing at borders, let's do... Yeah, there's a bunch of things that like, I think to people it seems obvious but there isn't like this kind of centralized planning uh, and if anything like there's kind of this decentralized lobbying to get the stuff fixed and like decentralized innovation to improve it so yeah that that part is like has been like a bit of a i think a shock to a lot of people but the thing that always kind of impresses me is kind of the entrepreneurial spirit that yeah you know, especially in america people have and there's just so many people trying to help and solve things and you know whether it's like bottlenecks with like shipping that like Flexport is like shipping a bunch of ppe uh, and so are lots of other people or whether it's like kind of like you know i have a friend that's got this you know website called covid act now which has been like helping states figure out what, you know how quickly they should be kind of doing lockdowns and things like that so i think that that's been like really cool to see and maybe you know maybe those kind of decentralized efforts will be enough to like get everyone to move in the right direction and quickly enough. So yeah, there's some positives there. I think, I think, you know, I would love to see kind of more centralized approaches to just fixing this. Like it's very hard to have decentralized efforts against a kind of like a global (laughs) pandemic that has like a very kind of, you know, uh, top down efforts would like work way better. Right.
0: Jude I want to hear your thoughts because I think you've been advocating for more decentralized response whereas yeah I think the, the mainstream take is hey you know more centralized governments you know can act much quicker more more effective you know get things done e- easier and that's sort of the, the big debate that we're, we're having the U.S. seems to have you know worst of both worlds in, in, in a number of cases but but Jude I'm curious to hear you sort of go off a little bit on decentralized versus centralized and and you know which for where.
1: Sure so I actually want both so I completely agree that with Imada I want I want to see a a really strong centralized approach and I want to see a really strong decentralized approach. And then ideally the communication is great between all sides such that the the strategies end up locking into each other. So if the government, if the government, you know, say, Hey, we want to solve these problems, who can do it? Then, you know, these decentralized companies and the market mechanism can kick in and say, yeah, we'll do it. What's the budget. And the two, the two have different kind of, you know, two groups have different properties and, Ideally, they work together, they centralize, decentralize to produce a better solution. But we've seen a real failing on the centralized approach right now. We've seen a huge lag. To, and they should have a lag because they have inertia because they're a larger body. But the lag has been really great. And, and it seems to have been an unexpectedly long lag. We will definitely have a lot of learnings from this about how to move forward here. And I think a lot of institutions, so people are going to ask them to be to be reframed and re- um, based on what's happened here. When we, when we do an analysis in eighteen months and we say, "Hey, well, is this the best job we could do?" We're going to say, "No, this wasn't." But the U.S. To your point about U.S. having both the worst of both worlds, I think it's got one of the best situations on the decentralized front, but because it, it's a much larger country, it's got a much harder problem on the centralized front
0: to deal with. And so, what does that conversation look like in eighteen months in terms of how, how organizations or institutions should be reformed? I'm not completely sure, and it depends on what ends up happening. If we end up containing this and
1: everything is okay and we don't have a wave two of COVID and we don't have a wave three of COVID and the economy gets back on track and it bounces back, then that, everything is going to be okay. We responded. Everything was okay. And if not, I mean, the elections are definitely going to play into this. And I'm not, I'm not any kind of political commentator, but the, the way that uh, the administration handles this will definitely affect the probability of getting back in or not. So in 18 months' time, I think people are going to be questioning what what happened here, who who made the right calls, who made the wrong calls, and it will go back into their election cycles probably. Um, at least I would hope it, hope it would, that there would be a mechanism of, of correction occurring based on who who had failing strategies and who didn't. I think there's going to be a lot of movement of people as well. I think a lot of people will move country, and they're going to move countries to countries that actually responded well. And we've already seen people, people have talked about movement from the Bay Area in the run-up to COVID just based on pricing. But now if, 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 if people are going to be shifting around the world and moving to places, we, we know people that got on planes and gone to Singapore, for example, and got, got out of the USA They were worried about the response that was going to occur. So we may see a, a, a brain drain, for, for at least a capital drain as well, for people moving to other places that, were, that was already getting accelerated by work from home and tech being everywhere and like incubators being everywhere and talent being everywhere and lower prices elsewhere. We may see it from a risk dimension now, where people people want to remove, uh, well, move to different places based on what happened there.
2: I think like a lot of things we're seeing uh, with COVID nineteen are, yeah. You know, everyone knew there was these underlying problems in kind of America, and a lot of them are being kind of brought to the surface. Like everyone knew, like the lack of healthcare was a serious issue, right? The fact that like it's very hard to get preventative care if you if you don't have health insurance, and I think it's like is it like 40% of people don't have health insurance or something insane like that? So, like, yeah, that's massively exasperated when there's like a global pandemic. Uh, everyone knew the FDA is like impossible to work with and it's very hard to get things done and improved. Everyone knew that like the government has been underfunding kind of basic research. Maybe everyone didn't know that the CDC couldn't respond to a global pandemic very fast and like that could be improved. But I think a lot of these things actually, like these underlying kind of Thing, uh, problems in the system and when you have like this kind of large force multiplier kind of applied to them you see them like you know suddenly there's like massive kind of light on the fact that there was these underlying issues so I think the positive take is a lot of the time you know it takes a while for us to respond but I think in hindsight hopefully we can reform some of these kind of in- institutions and underlying kind of societal problems and then you know come out of this like going okay you know maybe we should provide kind of Better healthcare that's that's not like ridiculously expensive in the US, uh, and we can you know learn from what other people do and like and be in a position that yeah you know, if this does happen again we can react quicker and and be kind of at the
0: forefront of a reaction to this. Totally, Jude, were you going to jump in? Sir?
1: Yeah, I had a few had a few ideas off the back of that. So it's it's pretty clear that we're going to have to reorient our supply chains. So the supply chains are very fragile. So we've got these extreme Efficiencies that we built with with the with the supply chains, and we're going to have to now think about buffering different kinds of products and and stockpiles to handle this or or handle other kind of global situation. Also, the I, I think we're going to we may see like acceleration of privatization of certain functions that we previously had centralized, inefficient in a centralized manner, and we may we may see these pieces like you know what what would a cdc look like if you actually chopped it up into a thousand different companies who could respond like modeling companies that could that could create the dashboards and prediction analytics companies that could do you know predictive analytics and you know companies like flexport who could be who could affect the supply chain and supply chain monitoring problems and transparency so maybe we'll see a bunch of new companies who will go and bridge the gap here um, also there's a, a major narrative that failed in media and not all the media but Many many places talked about this being just the, the flu, and that Silicon Valley was overreacting and that tech was overreacting prior to this like tech is, tech, tech and big tech especially has been in, in a bad in the bad books of of the media and and the culture wars that are occurring so tech has seen, seemingly come to the rescue in this particular case, so haven 't actually necessarily solved all the problems in any way, but some, some companies have directly done interesting things, the same I 'd said about Flexport. So there, there may be tech may may be back in the good books um, with people here, possibly, uh, maybe not, and and certainly the the healthcare innovation may may need to change in terms of how telemedicine is going to be, you know, taking off, and how you know we may have to actually have companies like building robustness into into society and people paying for that, paying for that kind of insurance.
2: Hopefully, everyone's read it, but Nassim Taleb has a great book called Antifragile, and like. You know, everything said in there, like, really resonates when we see these kind of events where, like, you know, if there's tons of people in the U.S. living paycheck to paycheck without healthcare, if there's, like, you know, millions of SMBs that that are in debt that can't, like, survive a month, uh, if there's, you know, these global supply chains, chains that break, no healthcare kind of stockpiles, like, all of these things are basically like a fragile system, right? Like, and when you have these, like, you know, it's not been that long, right? Like we've only been under lockdown in most places for two weeks, and like we should be able to survive multi months, multiple months of this without like everything kind of crashing all around us. So I think that like speaks to the fragility in the system, and yeah, you know, these kind of shocks hopefully get us to a stage where we can see where you know where things are fragile and where we can like shore them up for the future.
1: Yeah, intensive farming is another one as well. So I think there's going to be there already was a movement for cellular agriculture plant-based food plant-based agriculture and i i think that's we're really going to have that in question now about about intensive farming and whether the risks that we have in these kind of you know marketplaces with lots of different animals or poor conditions where you know the immune systems may be suppressed of the animals and, and be a breeding ground for these pathogens so that that's going to be probably accelerated and you know for the anti fragile like what you know looking through all the solutions of how we could be less fragile because we've got we've got global warming coming up, but no one's panicking panicking about that now until you know you have a million people that have water at their doorsteps and they're running around panicking for land so i think I think this is a precursor for some of the some of the big issues that are going to be coming up again so we we'll probably see another pandemic again, and this is not the worst absolute worst possible mathematical like are zeros and delay factors and symptoms and like mutation speeds that you could possibly have so we got to prepare for the next pandemic and we've got to prepare for like the the slower um, crisis of, of of the of global warming as well and, and maybe maybe we can
0: actually have more serious conversations about this stuff now are, are there other trends that you think are going to be uh, accelerated that are perhaps not obvious or perhaps reversed I think there's a bunch
2: of like startup trends that like and some of them are obvious, you know, like whether it's like work from home culture and decentralized kind of remote, uh, remote work. Uh, there's telemedicine, any anything where like you can do something online that previously required you to do in per- person. I think like that trend was already happening uh, remote education, remote fitness. Uh, I just think this, this kind of highlights that like, actually there was a bunch of things you could do offline and, you know, you never, you never really needed to do a lot of the business travel that people were doing. You didn't really need to go see a doctor for something that could have been done via like a video chat. Uh, so I think those things are like happening en masse because these people just can't meet anymore. Uh, and I think that those trends will continue. And and yeah, lots of people will come out of this and think, oh yeah, if only I had this piece of software that would have made like this education process easier or would have made like this kind of fitness process easier. And Like, I think we'll see a... Uh, Hopefully, like a whole bunch of innovation there, and I think, you know, if you the current startup funding ecosystem is like really dried up, but the only types of companies getting funded right now are ones that, that like actually work in this kind of enforced remote culture. Uh, so, you know, companies that are like facilitating working working from home or one of these other things—they're they're the only ones that are getting funded right now. So, I think we're actually going to see a lot of innovation around those trends that were they already existed, but I think this has highlighted how we could go a lot further.
1: Yeah. And, and I, I think we'll have a new age of biotech. So bi, biotech has been you know bubbling up in Silicon Valley and other places and getting kind of interesting. Right. And we saw that with Andreessen opening up their biotech fund and Y Combinator going into bio. And now for me, like, you know, in, if we see, I don't, I don't think we, we are getting diminishing returns in software. I think, I think it is a, a bit of a myth, but Maybe there's, maybe there's diminishing returns in some kind of, some kind of web property, um, the web in general. But the age the of biotech, I think, is upon us. So every, every person now is going to get more and more interested in bio, biotechnology and learning bio. And then we, we may see a neo-renaissance of people caring about academic papers and acad- academia, ideas, you know, the, the truth, and, and actually caring more about the stuff. And also, we've we've had a pretty, I would say, an apolitical ap- a, a generation to some extent. Like, you know, in terms of people not caring about you know what's around us and and how we got into the situation in the first place, I think I think we might see a lot of people now want to cut the bullshit and actually just get straight through and say like, who who's running us? Are they the most competent people around? I think there's also going to be some trends in security. So you know, we we. If you look at the global security in terms of different countries, the power shifts, there's going to be a lot of power shift that, that, that follows um, what, what is happening now depending on who are the winners and who are the losers of, of, of what happens here. Um, we'll see capital and movements as well. Uh, you can already see like you know, the stock market coming down and um, if, if there are if this continues to drag out and we have a really heavy wave two and a really heavy wave three, different countries are going to perform uh, different abilities in in this problem and that that will shift capital around that will shift the the currency markets as well so and then there's a security as well from a kind of the global tools we're using you know which tools are safe to use and which aren't safe to use so i think i think this is going to impact everything um almost every single wake of life i think people also will want to have more distributed solutions to their personal sustainability i.e you know possibly people caring more about growing their own food having their own kind of solar power on their own on their houses and power packs if they can um and all the time when we talk about these solutions the blue collar worker is getting forgot about as you know what are we going to do there as we automate all these things like automate delivery and have you know last mile delivery systems there's 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 this automation push which is kind of the security comes from automation in a sense but you cut out the human that that also creates this problem so this is it might segue well into some of the stuff we could talk about, you know, in terms of UBI, UBO, stimulus packages, et cetera, as well.
0: Yeah, let's uh, let's segue into that. How do we think about the economic response uh, to the crisis right now? And what uh, what should the response What should be different?
2: I think the I've actually gone like pretty really deep on this new stimulus coming out. I think it's I think it's good that something's being done and it's being done like at an incredible pace for, for government uh, to do. I think the the big missing piece to me is like, definitely like there's not enough going into like figuring out how we get out of this. So yeah, the way the federal government is going right now, we could be, we could be on for nine months. So like the stimulus is just not enough, right? Like it's the stimulus is very much like a two and a half month stop gap for SMBs and, and people. Um, it does a lot of things right, but it does it uh, kind of using the existing system. So yeah at least with smb space for example like instead of yeah albert wenger had like a pretty good proposal i thought where it was just like hey let's pause rent and mortgage payments and let's let's pause any kind of lending uh, and give people kind of like ubi thing and just like you know just like kind of like freeze things in that way uh, which i thought was like a nice proposal the the current kind of smb loan is is not that it's much more hey let's people let's give you know, a bunch of SMBs money, but using kind of existing banking infrastructure, which is often slow. And it's not clear how that they're going to be able to process kind of 20, 30 million SMBs uh, through kind of existing banking infrastructure. So it's, I think it's interesting. It's definitely like cobbled together a little bit. And but it's yeah, the government's really like actually stepping up for people and SMBs, and I, I appreciate that. I mean, there's obviously like some some level of like you know, I don't want to call it cronyism, but the people always gonna say like, any money going to big corporations, there's like uh, is it is are they the right people to be, be being bailed out kind of thing? But yeah, I think it's definitely necessary. I would just love to go and say actually, you know, a lot of these problems can be solved if you just gave like. You know, ten billion dollars to like research and uh, other things that like won't cost two trillion dollars, but like are actually going to go, you know, actually stop this uh, kind of going on for like the next nine months.
1: Yeah. So the rent, the rent's an interesting one, right? So the pausing, the pausing of these things, like, will it be a solution for the for the long term? So from if you look at you know Germany and Berlin, they they have rent control uh, as far as I understand over the whole city. And if you do it only on a certain place in the city, it means that you end up with very skewed markets, like we see in San Francisco. And if you do it if you do it across the whole place, and even in private commercial transactions, there are limitations to how fast the prices can grow. Maybe you have some kind of stability in 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 the rent. Um, so there's a big problem with with rent and and humans. You know that we need a f- couple of things. We need food, food and water, living space, and medical. So they're, they're the pieces on the table that are the basic kind of Fundamental needs that you that you you have to fulfill to in order to do higher level, more interesting things like science and research and art. So there's a question of whether we can get organized enough to produce enough market efficiency to to have something like free medical in the in the US. Um, It it works in the UK. It seems to be working right now. Um, The living space thing is a big problem, and I think there's going to if there is a shift. I mean, there's going to be a lot of commercial real estate um are going to have huge problems, including people, you know, companies like we work, um, if people aren't are gonna stick at working from home because they're gonna realize that, hey, it actually can work and we, we managed to pull it off for six months, so what, what's the point of me going back? Um, so some some workers will be able to stay back at home and some won't, um, and they'll have to, you know, they'll have to go into the factories, et cetera. So I, I am interested, it does bring the UBI debate back in, um, or at least the idea back back onto the table because um, if we're pausing it, then you know, what about the people after it's paused? How, how are they gonna how are they gonna survive? And and I think I, I wanted to see a shift in the conversation from rather than necessarily UBI to UBO, i.e., ownership, universal basic ownership rather than actual universal basic income, where it's it's you don't really earn, you're just getting the output of it, you're not really owning it, and therefore there's an incentive misalignment. Um, so there may be new models that we can actually look at that might be more practical. And on the, on the bailout side, for the big companies, in my opinion, like if we bail out a company that's very large, that already did move, move cash off the balance sheet and do stock buybacks, we should own, the taxpayer should own a piece of that business at a fair market price. Now, I'm sure the government has to do um, strategic um, ownership and strategic bailouts to keep things that are very important um, running for the economy, but at the same time, it shouldn't be a complete washout for the, for the taxpayer. On the small company side, I think that's where it's much harder so these, these coffee shops and, and restaurants and all this stuff are, are gonna go out of business. And if you think about it, if they really had own if they own their building and they could go back and shut down the building and come back later, they would have a better chance of booting back up again. But if they're paying rent, um, if it's not frozen, um, they, they're gonna they're gonna have a serious issue in even booting back up again. And the rent was already putting their business under massive pressure. So I think that's a major part of the concern for the small businesses, especially the the kind of retail side of it.
0: I, uh, I've always wanted to have Karl
1: Marx on my podcast. Oh, I, I, I'm not I'm not uh, advocating that in any way. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm advocating a a interesting uh, optimization for for
0: market market mechanism where people have incentive, incentive alignments. Yeah. So no, I, I think it's I, I think it's actually pretty fascinating. Uh, can, can you? And then a lot of crypto community seems you know adjacently uh, you know like some of the mechanisms there seem to be trying to uh, achieve some of what you're talking about. Can you talk more about what it would look like in practice? What could experiments look like or, or how could it work? Or just paint a picture of, of more. Of what- yeah. So I, I,
1: I mean the jump it yeah, so I, I thought that the, the UBI thing in general has not been well thought out in that, in that where does the money come from and where, and how do we align these incentives? So there's never been any really deep discussion on incentive alignments back into some kind of market mechanism of, Putting something back in, and there's not been a discussion of really where the money comes from, how much it's going to cost. So all these experiments we keep seeing, you can do that experiment, but it doesn't experiment what we need to test, which is how does it work at scale. So I actually don't, I actually don't know. I have not, I've not run any numbers or done any modelling and like just you know figured that out. And then the rent, the rent part is, is is really super complex, and you can't just come into a system that's already got a certain layout on the chessboard and try and make a particular move that doesn't work because the chessboard's laid out in a certain place in a certain way. And I'm coming from a, a European perspective on this as well. Having grown up in the UK, I think Emma also has that UK perspective when it comes to the healthcare.
2: Yeah. I mean, I would say like, you know, it's, it's actually not that complicated. Like we don't need crypto to do it. Like fractional share ownership already exists. Like if you give, if you give a company $2 billion, that's like about $6 per U S citizen that you could distribute through like fractional share ownership. Uh, yeah, I don't know if we want to go do it all on Robinhood or something like that, but, you know, fintech infrastructure has been kind of built up over the next ten, last 10 years that like doing something like that, you know, computers are pretty good at counting to 300 million. Uh, so I think we can do any of that. I mean, whether there would be like political will to do something like that. And like, you know, there'll be some questions around like having everyone go through kind of KYC and yeah, those kind of basic kind of questions but it's not i think it's like mostly about like choosing to do it i i don't think we need a really complicated decentralized system to do it like public market shares are centralized systems anyway so if we're going to distribute them kind of to every u.s citizen we would just use a centralized system to do it
1: yeah and, and, and a more controversial area to talk about here is that this is a function of the number of people we end up having on the earth right so if we, if we we've got a certain value being produced and certain amounts of goods being produced in all the different areas like food and energy and power, and we have, you know, we have more people being born than are dying. So we have an unsustainable model for human growth versus the growth of all the things we need to produce to fulfill that. And it's just balancing, you know, so if you take it to the limit and you say, okay, how far do you want to go? Like, do you want to have a hundred billion people on the earth? And do you want, do you want the, you know, the squeezes and the problems that come with that? Or are we going to try and figure out some way to be in some steady state? Is there a maximum upper limit of the number of people that we want to have on the earth?
2: I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, if you look at most Western countries, uh, they're no longer producing as many kind of people as are dying. And also the rate of acceleration across like, you know, every region basically is like negative. So I think most pe- models agree that like we're going to cap out on the number of humans on the earth, and actually that by itself is a problem because a lot of kind of, you know, a lot of like economic activity still requires like more labor. Uh, maybe that will change in the next kind of twenty years, but I think I, I don't think we have a problem with too many people. Uh, I definitely think we have a problem with like how resources are distributed among them, uh, and you know what will happen if like capital becomes the main main kind of earner rather than labor uh and hopefully those problems will, will be solved by the time they're like super important but but yeah i don't think we're running out of resources or people
1: i mean or space well i mean yeah there's a there's a distribution problem for sure and if it, you either solve it on the distribution and, and redistribution um, area or you have to produce like excess announced for the whole the whole system that that to me is a, there's also an efficiency like how how far are we willing to push these systems efficiency wise like let's just say this this um this this uh the virus the coronavirus did come from Wuhan you know did did that was that a result of pushing farming efficiency or market efficiency literally the market efficiency of having all these different animals next to each other to the maximum and maybe we need to put some some rails back on with with our international systems in terms of supply chains and security and sustainability. I I do hope that like we are moving towards like a but your prediction there, is right, that we that we end up with a a certain number of people. Because if it if it continues to to grow, there's other problems as well.
2: Well, you know, we've really definitely bent the curve on our, on the human spread, exponential spread. Uh, if you look at it on a graph, but, but yeah, I agree. I mean, we, there's definitely a lot of problems. I think like one of the problems with capitalism and, you know, I love capitalism as a entrepreneur, but you know, it does like, it just kind of favors getting more and more, but I don't think humans really need more and more. I think they, they need like purpose and like, um, uh, Yeah, like what people really need is not necessarily what capitalism capitalism delivers to people. So I think that's, yeah, a lot of these problems are like kind of related to that, right? Like capitalism is just always trying to like get more efficiency and get more money, but that's not like kind of happiness, uh, not in like a shallow sense of happiness, but like actual like contentness. uh,
0: Yeah, are there any, either of you have any sort of concrete recommendations as to how to fix for that? You mean
1: fix like, for COVID or fix for the whole fixed for human Before. happiness? This is
0: small <laughs> Meaning and happiness.
2: I think, like you know, there is like a little bit of capitalism that helps. You know, I think meditation apps and like you know those types of things. Like, there's obviously like there's gaps that they're fulfilling in terms of giving people kind of better health, mental health tools, um, and that does lead to happiness. Uh, yeah, I don't know. There's there's definitely, I think there's a lot of things that like technology does do right when it connects people. Uh, and then there's places where it breaks. I have a, I have a general thesis that I think like every generation, like the next generation gets better at using the technology that was like given to them in the previous generation. So I think like we just have to probably wait a generation to see like what our kids end up doing with kind of all the social media tools and things like that, that, that that our generation invented. So yeah. But potentially a part of it's just waiting and like I think better, t- better tools will emerge. Oh, I know that's like a little boring maybe. Yeah, I don't know. What else? You got some good ideas, Jude?
1: Yeah, so, so one of them is um, GDP metrics, right? So we measure GDP and we me- measure all these kind of economic outputs which don't necessarily come back to like what people want. So we've been chasing these graphs and ch- your whole society and economic system is chasing these particular measurements which don't necessarily correlate to what is important. And that being maybe you know people's people's well-being and happiness, that maybe being their economic productivity, but only in a means to an end, right which would be their back to their means and happiness, and maybe some other purpose, which might be an intellectual purpose or pursuit of exploring optionality for the human race, um which you could argue you know capital in, in itself is is some kind of optionality for for people. So there, there seems to be a breakdown of, of this measurement. Let's just give you an example here. So say the GDP falls, but as I say, everybody um, went work from home and hang out with their family and talk with them more and, and actually you know, grew, some, grew some vegetables in their garden and ended up getting the food and looking after each other and having a good time. It, that's probably not what's happening to most people right now. But if, if you, ca- you can design something where the GDP goes down, but people's happiness, well-being, fulfillment, knowledge, um, arts goes up. And I, I think um, that's one problem here. We don't have a way of measuring that stuff. So we go and measure what we can measure, and then we end up managing to that measurement. And that, that's a major issue here. Um, so we might want to think about how we can start to metricize the other things that matter. And then that will feed back into you know the people, the you know, administration that, that helps manage the whole situation, because they, they've got numbers to work towards as well.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. I do think there's like a disconnect when like, you know, when Trump gets worked up about like the stock market, I think people are like, why is the government caring about the stock market, right? It doesn't feel right. But it is like a very measurable daily tool that every second like takes off like a measure of the economy, right? Like how well the stock market's doing. Uh, If we did something like that for, for like human kind of contentness and happiness, that would actually be maybe a pretty good political driver by itself.
1: Yeah. And maybe it's going to be possible with, you know, companies like calm.com that you may, you may end up being able, if you get enough distribution and you can jump the selection bias of getting it outside of te- normal technology users into the mass populace, then maybe you can start metricizing the happiness from, you can certainly start measuring. We've been trying to measure the the knowledge that people have with, with exams and tests all the time, but it doesn't measure necessarily their creativity or whether they enjoy having that knowledge and enjoy having that capability We've certainly been measuring the optionality that people have. And when we talk about marketing people's 401ks, we we talk about we're effectively talking about their optionality to get what they want. So that that does matter. And and having yeah, having new metrics and having new goals around those metrics would be would be useful to, to actually shift to something that's more interesting.
0: What do you guys think about sort of the, the value capture problem? You know, Jude, you're working on Golden, you know, a lot of people could um or you know a few people could have a lot of value by you know creating a uh, knowledge that other people then use to to build on top of and and they capture value but the the construct of of observe of sort of value creation and, and value capture and and sometimes the, you know people sort of create foundational knowledge and then people then use to build other things don't don't capture that that value what, what do you think about that why don't we reframe it to value
1: release so one of the things about value capture is it seems it still seems back in the old models of like, I know, I, I know the intent is, 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 is well meant there, but if we reframed it to value release, how much value you can release into the network where you're part of the network and you're, gonna, you're a super node in that network because you're the distributor and, and you're going to release so much value that it's going to ricochet back to you and you'll absorb the value. So, so I, looking at this from new, new lenses of value release and value absorption, could, could be interesting to reframe the entire problem of, of of value capturing. Otherwise, like, I always get concerned about zero-sum games, negative-sum games, and I want to see, like, more, more companies and, you know, the companies that I get involved in and back and invest in and hopefully build uh, attempting to be more positive-sum games in, in the network. And I think maybe investors need to shift to that model as well that can make everything, everything better.
2: I think there's... Uh... You know, Mercury is a bank and, like, you know, one of the things that, one of the reasons we exist is because, like, other big banks have, like, been in this kind of overly value capture kind of situation where they charge a lot of fees and, like, do do a lot of, like, lack of transparent things. Uh, and I think the reason it's happened in banking is, like, there's just a lot of kind of regulatory kind of capture and, like, regulatory monopolies uh, that's just kind of reduced innovation in the space. So i think the main thing that and you know it's hard to get governments to act in this way but ideally governments would like encourage uh innovation and encourage competition and encourage like breaking of network effects you know there's a lot there's a lot that could be done with companies that have like strong network effects whether it's like google or facebook uh, which just makes it so it's Yeah, the fact that they're like making something and capturing value and like giving value to their users, I think that's fine. It's just when you end up with like large network effects that can't be competed against, it means that when you're not getting competition, that's when like, you know, prices go up. That's when innovation goes down. That's when users and consumers are not getting uh, kind of the best end of that bargain. So I think there's a part of it that's like necessary. And then there's a part of it which is like, you know, it does potentially re- require like some regulatory work like make it so they can't like maintain monopolies and be not you know in spaces that they can't be competed against i mean if they if there is good competition and they're winning uh, and you know they're winning because they're providing value to users and consumers i think that's fine uh, if it's just like they're winning because they you know managed to get an early lead and like now have a network effect and aren't doing the best things for their for the users i think that's where like we should think about doing something about it uh yeah
1: yeah a few things to riff on there like the the we kind of have these net we haven't you know current administrations around the world um don't really necessarily they are not really network effect managers and and we there's all this there's a lot of like fiefdom optimization and god you know what we really need are guardians of the network now like if we look at this COVID problem, we have people, we have lots of countries putting export controls on their own goods, so they can't shift, you know, so people can't leach the the equipment out of their own countries and not necessarily even very optimal syncing of those, all these equipment between the different countries. So if they thought in more of a network manner and said, Hey, we're all in this together, we already trade and we need to sync all this stuff together. Then, then that would be interesting if we can, if we can get these kind of people thinking in more of a networked way. Um, that that would that would come back to this kind of value capture, value receive, release, value absorption. Like, where am I? Where am I in this network? What's my function here? What's the optimization requirement uh, condition over the whole network?
0: Totally. Maybe maybe let's segue into how should startups be thinking about uh, COVID, and um, what are some non-obvious thoughts uh, r- related to that? Maybe uh, Ahmad, we can start with you.
2: Yeah, I think one of the hardest things about startups is like when these situations change and you've got your you've got your 2020 plan that you just built in December and you were like very committed to it. I think it's uh entrepreneurs are like almost by definition like stubborn and optimistic. Uh I think it's worth actually really stepping back and doing like it's much better right now to go like what's the worst thing that could happen? Like what happens if, you know. I can't raise in the next 12 months. What if happens if the economy doesn't recover? What happens if like my users don't have as much discretionary expenditure and like my revenues go down and really go like, okay, like what is the worst case here? And like, how do I survive that? Like, is there new products I need to build? Um, is there a thing that I need to do to extend my runway? Uh, you know, one thing I think startups can easily do bad is just not kind of, not think about extending the runway quickly and effectively enough, so you know if you have 500k left and you're burning 100k right now, that's only five months. That's just not long enough. Um, I think you want to not do multiple cuts and layoffs. I think that makes everyone in the team feel like their their job is threatened and they, it feels like the CEO doesn't have a good plan. but I think if you need to, and you know it's a it's a hard situation, but if you need to you extend that runway like right now and not wait and extend it for 10 months at least. Right. Uh, in that situation. So I think there's, I think it's worth going like worst case scenario and, and planning it all out. If things turn out positive, right. If it's, you know, if we handle this whole thing really well, everyone's going to getting back in the, in the jobs and everything's looking pretty good at three months, that's great. And then you can like rebuild it up that's fine and you'll yeah you will always feel bad if you didn't prepare well enough but you're not going to feel bad if you over prepared and then things turned out better than they did so I think that's like a very practical advice that I would give people uh, I think I think these kind of VCs and angel funds everything everyone has gone like way tighter and I've seen a lot of companies kind of thinking about going to series a or seed funding right now and it's yeah it's going to be a hard slog. Uh, it's not not doable. Like there'll definitely be people that do it, but especially with so much uncertainty in the in the air, I think it's better to, you know, wait it out um, and and really focus on kind of building the company and yeah, you know, hopefully just you, you know keep growth up.
1: Yeah, to so add a few few things to that. So yeah, I mean, runway is a, is everything on this one. So you know, there's a stimulus package that some people can apply for, and you got to look into whether it's appropriate for your company. Anything to improve your cash flow as well. So there's probably things you can do to, to get that improved. Going for more revenue. I would say going for revenue earlier, cutting all the bullshit projects from your company and just really focusing on the thing that's going to really move the needle. Uh, working harder to a certain extent as best as you can without like compromising your immune system and risking yourself to COVID right now. And if you're a hardware company, I've seen some interesting tactics from companies like Astronus who uh, they, they ha- they're they a hardware company. that They have to go to their lab. And you know, so so creative ways to keep your product moving and your roadmap moving, and they've moved to this kind of distributed model, where they can still keep everything um, improving, and and working in very small teams, and they they're being creative how they can survive it. Some companies have pivoted as well, so becoming more relevant to this market and being in line with either directly working on COVID things or or working on secondary tertiary effects that might come from it, or making something that actually is you know parallel to helping people work from home or helping other businesses survive. So I think I think there's a lot of there's now a lot of money out there as well from the government that's being pushed forward for COVID directly COVID you know projects that you might be able to pivot to. I think from the investor perspective as well, really like having those conversations, you may not want to raise straight away, because as Imod said, everybody wants to raise right now. So it's it's a clusterfuck in terms of um investors reading their in- like reading their inbox and trying to get um things done and they're, they're also probably slowed down because they're having to remove all their finances around and um so the the raising when to raise is a, is, a, is an important question I and mean, if you're running out of money right, right right now then maybe you want to do some kind of revenue experiment or consulting sometimes you know you may have to do some consulting to make ends meet um while while building your startup but i mean given that there will be a good bounce back out of this probably and you know i think it's still a good time to start a company, start a startup. And me and Emma went through, went through that recession in 2008, 2009 when we were building app and we survived it. when we were down to zero cash, negative cash and, and, and making decisions that were pretty extreme for, for pure survival. And, um, you know, we were always told by, by the previous generation that, you know, lots of the best companies came out of the recession. So, you know, I do think if you still want to do a startup, it could be a very good time to start the actual product work and then when, when this starts to lift back up, then, we, then you can get your raising back on.
2: I think a lot of things that, you know, people, when you're in like a lo- long kind of bear market, people forget, uh, sorry, a bull market, people forget like the lessons of the p- previous bear market. And I think those things are like kind of playing out a little bit. So, you know, one thing that <laughs> I've always believed in and like, I think people slowly stop believing in is like having just a really strong lead investor that has like a, deeper pockets and like is, is kind of, kind of back you up in these kind of times. And it's, yeah, this is more like a hindsight thing. Either you have it or you don't have it, but, but a lot of investors and VCs are like now going like, Hey, this is now our job to like, make sure that the companies that did have, um, you know, good, uh, good chances, but like now are struggling in this kind of sudden downturn. We want to support them uh, through this. Uh, doesn't mean they're just going to like bail bail companies out, and yeah, you know, they're obviously going to get some equity out of it. But I think the good investors, that are lead investors, are I've seen them kind of behaving well and like not being on risk in terms and like really backing up their companies, and it's great to see that. So I think a lot of these kind of lessons from um, previous times that uh, that didn't matter as much when like all the markets were up are going to matter now. So yeah, something to think about.
0: Totally. Um, you had a, a post uh, about a month ago, Ahmad, uh, talking about fundraising need to optimize for the medium success case. Can you un- unpack that argument?
2: Yeah, I think this is it, right? <laughs> it's, it's basically actually like a, a perfect kind of sudden synthesis of the point I was trying to make, which is that, you know, like startups are just not like a very straight journey, right? Sure. There's some people that just hit that exponential and just grow every month for like all the time. Uh, that's great. But there's a lot of companies that, that are not, that are doing well, but not like absolutely killing it. Right. Like maybe the growth rate is 7% a month. Maybe, uh, maybe they've got some like really cool project coming out soon, but it's not like live yet and they haven't quite hit the milestone. So they're still burning money, but they haven't hit the milestone. Uh, like all of these kind of middle cases are like where where you kind of need to, you know, where like basically it's not going so well that like everything is going to be easy for you, but it's not going so badly that you're going to die, right? Like in those cases, that's where actually playing a good previous fundraise can help you. So a few of the cases I talked about there is like, you know, hey, if, I, if you go crazy and try to get like, you know, some big valuation in your initial fundraise, you're potentially overvalued for if you don't do extremely well. So if you do medium well, uh, now suddenly you can't get much of a multiple. Everyone looks at like your previous valuation and says, okay, you know, you raised at 30 million, but it looks like you're 35 million uh, valuation company now based on like the progress you've made. And that just, you come, you start this whole second process where you're fundraising with this negative signal. And I think a lot of it comes down to like, what are the, what is going to be the perception in the market when you when you do need uh when you haven't quite killed it and you need to like go raise money or or you need to go to your existing investors and and get like extra cash and you know part of it's like what happens if there's a huge recession and and suddenly like you know all the all the capital markets dry up right so i think there's a bunch of things that are like kind of in this kind of case of like optimizing for the medium case uh one of the you know i said don't have too high a valuation have Ideally, a, a strong lead investor, and like you know, if you end up having a slightly worse terms with them, but they have like a really strong kind of founder friendly reputation, they you know the reason these people have like that strong reputation is because they go to bat for their founders, and that's that's always helpful in these times. Other things are, you know, I'm always uh, telling people to not avoid having multiple leads, especially in seed rounds. Like you want to have one person that has real skin in the game, real ownership big VC funds sometimes participate in seed rounds and, you know, they don't really care when they put a hundred K in, they just see that as like an option call for the series A. Uh, but that's not a good option for founders in the case where there is the medium, medium success. And like, you go to, uh, you know, you go to that VC firm and they're like, Oh, you know, I'm not, I'm no longer that excited about what you're doing. And now you've got everyone else in the market saying, hey, why doesn't that VC that already backed you? Why don't they want to do your Series A? And yeah, I've seen companies get really hurt by that. Not just in the Series A, that can hurt you in the Series B as well, right? That can be like almost a, hopefully it doesn't kill your company, but it can definitely like massively uh, hinder it. So there's lots of these kind of little things that I think in fundraising, people people get like kind of excited and they don't think about, yeah, you're selling this vision, right? Like entrepreneurs always selling this like, dream that like they're going to grow forever and they're going to be huge, et cetera, which is good. I mean, you have to believe that and you have to sell it, but you also have to prepare for like, okay, what are the contingency plans? If I don't get quite to those goals, what's my backup? Right. And like actually preparing for your backup is kind of more important than preparing for the great case because if things are going great, everything's going to be fine almost no matter what decisions you made initially.
0: Totally. You also had a a post on, on culture and how, uh, optimizing too much for one cultural attribute can sort of lead to the negative elements of that cultural attribute, and so it's good to have a a secondary cultural attribute that sort of counteracts the uh, the the problems of the first one. W- what does that look like in practice, uh, in general, and or maybe at Mercury? Like, what are some what are some examples of that?
2: Yeah, I mean that that's to be fair, straight out of hot things, uh, not hot things about hot things, but, things, but uh, what you do is who who you are from Ben Horowitz, the new book, which I think is like a great book on on culture. Um, I think in terms of like practicality, what, what we do with that is, uh, you know, we have a few core cultural attributes, being curious, being humble, being product driven. And um, there's a, there's a couple of other ones. Those are, those are probably the main ones. I think, you know, how that manifests is like, I think if you take like any one of them, right, like, uh, like, let's say humbleness, right? Like you could be too humble where like you, you don't have confidence in your, in your own skills and you don't, you don't forward your opinion and you always kind of go with whatever someone's saying right like that would be the other edge of that i think it's not always like a stated thing but but we're you know we try to counteract it a little bit with let's say the curious attribute right like we're we're looking for people that that are interested in problems that try to get to the first principles kind of, of why that problem is and like they will you know they have an opinion about things right so uh, so finding and like those attributes are sometimes hard to find, right? Like someone who is humble and like not super ego driven, but at the same time is like kind of has opinions about things and is curious and wants to solve things, right? So I think you there's like a balance and like yeah, you know, we don't necessarily have it perfect, but there's a balance of like cultural attributes that you need to have and you need to kind of be true to them, right? Like if the if like if the leadership is like much more kind of alpha. Uh, wants to, wants to be like really forceful. I mean, that can work, right? Like there's plenty of cultures that are like that. Uh, So I think like you don't want to take someone else's model and like fit it to you. But I think if like, if it comes from the top and like there's this like strong belief that these are the cultural attributes you want uh, you kind of have to think a little bit further and go, okay, yeah, this is what I want. Like I want a smart person, but I also want them to uh, not like be kind of, uh, dismissive of other people's ideas, for example. So, like, you just need to think a little bit further. Like, what would the most my- myopic person that followed this culture like? What would be the downside of having that person? And then you need to go, okay, like, how do I counter that downside? And I think any attribute has like a trade off, right? Like, there's n- nothing in life is just like pure positive. So, you just need to think about like what's the most extreme negative of that and how I counteract that.
0: Totally. I, I want to zo- zoom out a little bit and go back to our. Topic of uh, how we started this call: decentralization and centralization. You know, uh, Jude, I'm curious. Your more, more thoughts and frameworks for how to think about you know uh, how they both work together, whether it's at the level of the economy or the level of a of a company. What, what are some frameworks or, or ways to think about that, that sort of tension or or collaboration? Sure, I, I kind of
1: I like boiling this down into a network kind of diagram of all these different nodes of people in this economy that can you know come up with interesting innovations and help each other and then we have the kind of transfer objects that move over this giant network between the nodes, which are like the the money and the goods transfers and the ideas and the information. And then there are super nodes of like structures in there that we all have to that inherent pro- inherits properties from from their pro- rule rule sets, you know, say from from the government, and it's kind of like the network manager of the whole thing, which is the administration, and the network manager, you know, can only do certain moves, um, and and the individual nodes can do certain moves as well in this kind of game. And I also kind of kind of like to model it as kind of almost as a game, right? Um, and I don't mean game in the sense of, kind of Call of Duty. I mean game as a kind of game theoretic type model. So for me, there's like out of this model, you can start like popping various properties in there and saying, oh, what happens if we have gatekeepers at these super nodes that, could, you know, that prevent, you know, right now I can't go and get my contact lenses because I haven't in the USA, you have to have, uh, you have to go back in every year to, to check that the uh, prescription is the right prescription, but guess what? It hasn't changed in seven years. Um, <laughs> and in the UK I can just turn up and, and go and get and pick up my prescription for my contact lenses. So right now I have to do a physical interaction. With someone when we 're supposed to be social distancing in order to pick up my contact lenses, so the gatekeeper I think there's an interesting trend here that we may we may see we 're seeing the unbundling of the gatekeepers and we 're seeing the kind of fall of the gatekeepers where m- lots of rule sets have been put in place um, by gatekeepers to protect themselves and and, and actually p- provide inertia to a more distributed response and We see this with with ventilators and the fDA you know people do, trying to do 3D printing on on ventilators and in Italy they you know they when you put someone to the edge and you know people start throwing out all the rules and they say, you know, we we gotta get we gotta get the ventilators made. So this 3D print them. I don't care if they're um EU approved or whatever. This person's about to die and you know we need a solution right now. So FDA has been moving. You know, they've got their compassionate grounds um type type uh language for for using some of these more experimental drugs, but there's no other choice. You just try you either try something or or the person will die. So I think I think this is this crisis has pushed making us quite these different rules that we have in place, and some of them we just accept and you know we don't there's not enough activation energy in the network to bother to try and lobby to remove this contact lens or this you know glasses prescription rule, which has you know a reasonable counter argument for why why you should keep it it just doesn't doesn't seem to be needed in Europe. I think we're going to see people question many many of the rules in front of us, and we have to have a better syncing between. The the network nodes, the super nodes, and and the and the network administration, i.e. the administration. And to Imad's point about this culture, I guess it's been been Imad explaining Ben's point as well. I was thinking while you were walking that idea through that you know why do we not vote on some of the cultural properties we're looking at um, for for some of the people that that are, uh, are running the centralized system? Um, so you know we we're not defining the, the the characteristics of the centralized system in the ways that maybe we should be. Uh, we go after a person, an individual, maybe we should be looking at characteristics that, that would be optimal for running this whole network and what is optimal for the, for the decentralized approach as well.
0: Jude, are you really into the idea of eudarchy? Like, should we run companies or society by, uh, by prediction markets?
1: Uh, I haven't thought it through much. Um, I'd I, well, I, I, I prefer run it like we're running it right now and suggest tiny little changes that add up to being something better. So it's a rate rather than do large, large fundamental graphics. I think they, they, these the experiments of the past and history don't have shown that the radical like changes don't really work. There's too much of a shock to the network. So I, I'd like to think of it more as an organism where you, where you make these small changes, mutations or whatever, and you, you improve to, to a better kind of evolved state. Can, do you want to walk through the idea and we can maybe pick it
0: apart live? Oh, sure. So yeah, basically the idea it, let's say, at a company level, uh, or you were talking about voting on culture. Uh, you know one example could be voting on whether so the, the whether the CEO should be fired or whether we should keep a CEO. So right now, the board board gets together and they say, you know, hey, we, you know four of eight of, you know seven of us think that the CEO should be fired. let's fire the CEO in a few world, you could imagine uh, sort of polling you know all the employees at the company or the employees who matter and saying, hey, uh, if the CEO is is at this company, what do we think the return, you know, the state of the company will be in a year from now? Uh, you know, you put a bet on that Versus if the CEO is replaced, what do you think the, um, you know, company will be at uh, a year from now? And if, if, oh, interesting, okay. if they all unanimously, I've yes, a position. Sort of wisdom of the crowds and skin in the game. All right. So I got,
1: I got a few positions on this. I don't think consensus works very well for product development or making, making radical, by the way, when, when I said I didn't want ne- necessarily radical network shifts, I do want to see radical product shifts. Because they're kind of like one node in the game, so the node can be the node can be radically redesigned for new product, and that sometimes requires one brain to to really go through everything and come up with something completely new. So I don't think the iPhone would have been made via consensus, and and I don't think uh, penicillin would have been discovered by consensus. So there's a pro, there's a, there's something there around the consensus, i.e., there's an activist investor that wants to fire Jack Dorsey. That's probably you know there's probably probably the wrong thing to do for Twitter. And that's that's really one node versus another node. But I, so I don't I don't think necessarily having you know democratic voting on what is you know for a problem set that requires sometimes one person to go and lead and go directly through to a solution. On the prediction market front, it's a little bit more interesting, right? In that they they got skin in the game, so you've added that component into there, where it's um, which is more direct. Well, maybe they don't have skin in the game with the prediction market, but with some of them you could add skin in the game. And then with some of the crowds is is a, is a good phenomenon. Like they they are good at picking certain things like if you you know try to estimate the number of marbles in a jar and you know using wisdom of the crowds does get to the right answer i don't think it gets to the right i think the model breaks down when you add in many more dimensions i.e a product you know making a radical product spec where the dimensions go to a thousand and there are constraints and these dimensions play off each other something becomes quite difficult there where you can't break away those dimensions and try and do wisdom of the crowd to predict every single dimension that this product should have in order to make it the perfect product and it requires a small group of people if not one or two people to have a seed of an idea and so i I'm, i think in general i'm not a fan of the idea if, if that's what i'm hearing um it might be useful for certain types of things and then when we look at the stock market well certainly people can't pre- predict predict which companies are going to be the best and people are not super good at predicting the stock market the, the best strategy there seems to be index and just wait for 10 years so unless you've got an information edge and then it's fine but the so the prediction market thing, I, I I'm still a fan of the current way that the business businesses work and the that boards work, um, and, and you know, there's, there's optimizations to be done, but I would say nothing radical from my perspective. I
2: think sometimes like people rely on capitalism a bit a bit too much, and like we can already see there's so much like misinformation, whether it's around COVID or like kind of brexit in the uk you know i don't i think people are like too influenced by these things i would like to see a world where like kind of scientists and like experts that like have really thought about things are are the ones that like you know make decisions in their domain at least uh and they i don't know how we get to that world uh but that's you know like the people that should be leading decisions when it comes to kind of getting this virus under control should be like Epidemi- epidemiologists that have like shown that they understood it, and then they have foresight and and are working on it. It shouldn't necessarily be politicians that were like pretty good at campaigning and raising money from donors. Like yeah, you know, we're not, we're not necessarily optimizing for the right decision making skills when it comes to these things. So I don't know how we get to that world, but I would love to see the right people making the right decisions.
1: Yeah, money in politics is a big problem. So if we look, talk about skin skin in the game is an interesting attribute here, and you know putting putting cash in the system there seriously breaks down breaks breaks down this uh what should be like pure really good ideas to represent your kind of constituents and stuff as opposed to people giving you money who have special interests so there's definitely something wrong with the mechanism that of which we we pick people to manage to like centralize part of the system and then there's certainly in the network model it's kind of like you know the efficiency it's looking for efficiency in a network. It's looking for that kind of capitalist efficiency. It's just in the capital framing, in the capitalist framing, we're, we're framing it with certain outcomes, uh, which is not necessarily, hey, maximize the overall network value and all the interchange value and specific node minimum thresholds. And I, I think there's no, we never see any rigor in the conversation when we talk about all these frameworks in terms of people actually talking about the conditions that we really want. And everybody's always on different different pages with the model. So, you know, I, I feel like you end up with different kind of sets of people having arguments about definitions and they, they latch on to old ideas and we don't make too much progress on this, but maybe maybe there's going to be new thinking after COVID.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Arnold Kling had this uh, sort of post talking about the financial crisis or this idea of aligning knowledge and power where basically the people that were, you know, closest to the data were furthest from the decision, from the decision-making process. And it seems like that's, that's here too. And it's if you have a centralized process, you need to sort of you know immediately shift to get those right people in a decentralized way. Like I, I, I markets typically filters for for you know for experts in the sense of it gives them the resources.
1: Yeah, and the governments are also in the marketplace as well because people now can move. And, you know, you can fly anywhere in the world. Well, after COVID, you can for you know sub well, around thousand dollars, and that's still a lot of money. But that that could continue to fall. You would you would imagine with some radical you know or new new aviation technology. That taking a flight will just be like taking, you know, walking, uh, riding on a bike or something. So we could end up in a situation where flights are cheap, and that that could mean that, you know, and also relocating could be could become, I think, it could become ever cheaper and more normal, and that that could mean that, you know, these governments have to compete for for constituents and power and economic power and produce. And right now, most people can't move; they can't they can't jump on a plane and change. Um, but I can imagine that. That happening where you know new states like make new rules that are really good and people go move there and new companies are formed and values formed and the money moves and more people move. So I think we're going to see a lot more competition between the governments, and that means they have to keep innovating their model to
0: represent their constituents in a better way. Totally. You know, uh, earlier we were talking about how to you know uh, modify capitalism for meaning and happiness on, on the Emma's thread, right, and you asked how would I modify it for COVID, and I, I want to ask if there are, are any sort of other things we haven't yet talked about that that you might find interesting. For example, one thing I might find interesting, not necessarily COVID specific, but does address some, some challenges with capitalism on the equality front, is basically some version of a, um, well, basically just to popularize tokens in the sense of when Facebook, uh, the next Facebook or the next Google or the next whatever you know software product that leverages data that users contribute gets really big instead of uh, just the founders or just the employees um, having serious upside from that, the, the users having upside uh, too, and so that way, when uh, like we wouldn't have sort of uh, animosity towards towards billionaires, we would have we, we, we or or these companies that they represent, we would we would be excited that they get big because you know everyone's an investor, everyone gets big too, which is I think I think that was the Karl Marx dream to bring, to bring it back full circle that you know ninety nine instead of you know one percent capital, ninety nine percent labor, it's ninety nine percent capital. Um, I'm curious what you, what you think of that idea or are there any other sort of modifications or ideas you might implement that we haven't yet discussed?
2: Yeah, I mean, I find it still crazy that like someone can like spend all their money on gambling or stock market, et cetera. But like, you know, there's all these accredited investor rules about like uh, investing in private companies. I think it makes sense to protect uh, investors, but really all investors should be protected and we should just come up with a mechanism that doesn't mean that like, people without like a certain level of income, uh, they can't participate in an asset class. Uh, I think those kind of like rules actually make it hard for companies to do any sort of like kind of tokenized distribution of wealth. Um, and I think like, you know, I, I dislike kind of like going quite far with capitalism and then, and then making like rules that protect like richer people and richer businesses. I think that's where a lot of types of capitalism have ended up. Um, but yeah, I think it's a cool idea. I think there's definitely and there's companies that would be willing to do it and they you know, they find it hard to do it just because, you know, everyone's like crypto's answer, but really actually like you kind of need governmental support to do things like this and uh and to do them well. Uh and yeah, you know, in some countries I guess they'll allow it, but in the US it's pretty tricky. Uh but yeah, I think there's definitely like good ideas there. People have shown, I mean, you saw it in crypto, right? People really do want to participate in the creation of these kind of technology products. And uh, I think if they could be incentivized in the right way, uh, there is like a way to do it. Uh, I don't think it's like the answer is always crypto. I think the answer is like, let's think of making a great product that incentivizes people in the right way. And the technology solution is like separate from that. Uh, but, yeah, I think it's definitely interesting.
1: Yeah I totally agree on the accredited investor stuff so in the UK um it just is just not like this and, and many other places and yeah you know, when it's just astonishing to me that you could have a threshold and say you're only you you are not allowed to put that money into the start this new startup even if it's your best friend and you and you even if you can program and you've actually read the source code and you've read the, you've read the early stats and you really like it Um, and you're frugal and, and you don't gamble and you don't waste any money, but you just want to make this one bet on this company and you're not allowed to do it. So that to me, you're not allowed to put your money into it. You could start working on it. That to me is an arbitrary rule. And it, and it seems like we need to move to new standards, which might be, you know, the punishment that comes with like defrauding people. If you, if you do something bad, um, and you know, there, there needs to be maybe some, some conditions and rules on there. Um, so we, we got this gatekeeper problem once again with IPOs and you know, we, we may have seen some new kind of stuff happening with Eric Reese's IPO market and there's a gatekeeper problem up there, there's a gatekeeper problem on who could be an investor. Um, we've also got a monopoly problem. So when you play the game Monopoly and you go around the monopoly board and you've got this $200, $200 you get this reinjection of money um, to, to uh, when you pass Go and that, that, that makes the game more interesting. So if you remove that, if you make it $0, the game becomes boring um, and it actually it ends up with someone getting Monopoly too quickly. And if you increase it, if you go up to $300, $400, $1,000, $2,000, the effects of the Monopoly, um, assuming the bank can keep <laughs> keep putting this money out, um, get, you know, the, game, the game can continue on and it can end up in some kind of stable state and someone doesn't get the Monopoly. So I think there's some balancing and retuning that could be done to keep the game interesting. And you know, if the game was boring, we so we do some of this rebalancing already. And there's certain thresholds where if you do too much, well, there's no, there's not that interesting. And if you do too little, it's it, it's broken as well. From the data ownership perspective, to switch to a different area, that you mentioned, you know, that we're seeing this happen in Europe more, where individual users own own their kind of data rights. From from a kind of ethical standpoint, from a kind of privacy standpoint, from a monetary standpoint. So I I think that's interesting. Um, I don't see why, you know, when I go around the web, um, I should be able to make a trade and, and you know, make a trade with a website, which is, which is, hey, I've got some data. I'm willing to share it with you if you're willing to share me some information or something that I, I think is interesting. And the reason we haven't done it yet and it doesn't really work very well yet is that we haven't productized it very well. And I think, I think it's the crappy solution to have to click, you know, accept on cookies. You know, do you want cookies? Yes or no? And you've got this horrible banner. That is not, that is not what I talk about. So data ownership for units and more ownership about your stuff, but also it being very trade compatible um, is is interesting. And then in the last part, we talked a little bit about you know this this universal basic ownership. And I was thinking that you know is there, you know am I am through that idea about airdropping? Uh, we were talking on a, tweet, on a tweet thread about airdropping people ownership. So I I wonder how we can unpack the mechanics about that because a lot of people are talking about it, but we still haven't seen practical. I I I don't know a practical kind of explanation about how it could be implemented and be sustainable and not break the system and not break the market and actually be like motivational to a lot of people and we certainly have to solve this this problem.
0: Totally. The uh, one one last construct I, I want to finish on is is, is going back to decentralization centralization. I'm I'm sort of curious about sort of natural laws about how these sort of go, like all, all I get from people is there's sort of natural pendulum and we, we operate. And I guess a couple examples I'll give where, where this would be interesting to have a natural law around it is when you think about things like, I'll give three examples. One is language. Are languages going to get more concentrated or more fragmented over time? I.e., you know, or both, uh, you know, everyone's speaking English or we're having thousands of languages. Cities, uh, you know, next hundred years, are we going to have Way more city, you know, every like uh, hundreds of Singapore's and Israel's or, you know massive empire or, or both, uh, and and money is the of them. How do you think about uh, any natural laws around decentralization or or for those any of those three examples, Jude? I've I've had one theme in my
1: head, which is clouds and rain. So the clouds form, and then it starts raining, and and you know these these pen, this pendulum um, analogy is that these systems are nonlinear systems can have metastable states in certain conditions and then you start changing up the numbers and then it shifts and it shifts to another metastable state just like the climate can do so when we think about when we're talking about languages like you know there is a convergence as far as i understand on languages in terms of spoken language and, and the number of um, we're actually losing languages over time but if you look at say programming languages we are gaining programming language over time so there's different, you know, for the spoken word, I can imagine there being a convergence into an endgame battle between English and Chinese or Spanish and Chinese or Spanish-English-Chinese. And, and you know, lots of people do not want to lose that richness in the way that people speak. Um, and I think my mom was telling me on the phone two weeks ago about her professor had, had gone to the bedside, missed a lecture that he was supposed to give her because he'd gone to the bedside of someone that was the last old Manx speaker, i.e. the, the Isle of Man, I think. Um, who spoke, and, and, and there was the last person that spoke that language, so we were talking about uh, losses of languages happening and she 's very sad about that but um, so the question is if the, if we 're gaining programming languages and we 're losing natural like natural spoken languages or written written types of languages then we're losing that for some reason because we're not logging it, whereas programming languages were logging it. So, could we have better sensors that could actually record all these rich languages and variations? The other thing that's changing is that we have evolution occurring and, and we have modifications to the body occurring, and eventually we have new ways to have memory, which, you know, like computerized memory or whatever. So, that may allow us to actually store more languages and maybe even learn these languages faster. So, I, th- I think my prediction on this one is that we're going to lose languages, unfortunately. And we're going to gain, we're going to gain programming languages as another kind of non, non-spoken word languages. And then we're going to go into a rebound where we have this Cambrian explosion of new ways of communicating because we can actually handle it as a human. You know, we may have some universal translator. So someone might gesture use something in it and you, and you get a kind of response in, in your, your receiving language.
2: I think there's like two sides to, to like this pendulum thing. I think one side of it is like when you just kind of mess with the system, it, uh, it gets better. I know that's like a weird thing, but like change basically like improves things. Like um, I was talking to one of the co-founders of Gusto and he was saying that every year they, they switch it between the business team kind of being integrated between the engineering team. Uh, and then, you know, when they're all integrated, uh, the engineers start complaining that like they're always distracted, etc. So then they put them on separate floors, but when they're on separate floors, uh, the, you know, the, the the company feels disconnected and, and then they, they put them together again. So they, they, they were saying that they were flipping every year. And I think that's like where that pendulum effect is that like uh, there's like kind of pros and cons to, to doing things one way or another, whether it's like centralized or decentralized or whatever. And I think like when you switch between them, you remember, you remember a lot of the pros you had and then they, they kind of like legacied into the pros of the new system and then like when you when you go too far into it then you then you care about the um uh, the cons a lot so i think that's where the pendulum comes in but i'm I'm a big believer that like humanity as a general is progressing forward so i don't think like all things will have a pendulum like i don't think we're going to forget how to defeat bacteria using antibodies antibiotics and I, i'm not a believer that antibiotics will become like ineffective over time i think we're just Develop better ones and new ones. Uh, so I think there's like things that are like truly progress, and knowledge is like the easiest kind of form of progress that I don't think goes backwards. But I think there's there's concepts that that do have this kind of balancing effect to them, where where I think they do go backwards and forwards. Like there's definitely there's definitely benefits to centralization. There's definitely benefits to decentralization, and that's why like those concepts will never leave us. They will always go kind of uh, in in like back and forth between them
1: yeah and and to extend the analogies here like we saw this with with cloud and client side type type technologies right you can imagine that in the future there might be some kind of device that could sit on your on your wristwatch that could have like the 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 state of the internet backed up in for for the, the last 10 minutes or something so so you know the data would be on the client side there but being backed up from the from the decentralized place and i think we've seen these oscillations between like client side back to like distributed back to client side you know like let's just take this the crazy supercomputer you've got a crazy supercomputer you're terminaling in you're getting into the supercomputer and then you've got a personal computer then it goes back to the cloud and then you you know you're doing some kind of SETI at home in a distributed you know early 2000 like distributed computing then you're back to an iPhone which is really powerful and then you are back to a virtual terminal which is just a screen and you've got some kind of um, cloud you know machine in the cloud that you're running off like so Hill's new new company and then you're back to, like, some other... You, see, it, this oscillates depending on the technology variables. And if we look at offense and defense, if you look at, like, the sovereign individual, when they talk about defense and offense, about how armor, like, physical armor for knights changed the, the balance between the power of the king and the power of the state and, and the power of the distributed power. Um, and that shifted. The technological innovation is kind of this, like, uh, you know, mini kind of events coming up, these little black swan events that change the game and that could be a discovering technology, um, usually is, and that shifts it. It can shift the balance between these two states. So then we, but it doesn't have to be the dichotomy, as, as I think you guys um, talk about, um, as in allude to, that that it can be put together where we've got some advantage of the of the centralized state and and the advantage of the distributed network, um, and and they can come together. And I think the technology changes that occur allow us to do this either shift it between centralized decentralized or put it together better and i can imagine with um some new technologies coming up that we would actually see a a, a kind of more integrated system and it is a shame to see like you know everyone go on about decentralized systems decentralized crypto decentralized everything it doesn't have to be like that i think i think you can have hybrids um there's always a third way and there's between these dichotomies is, is one other learning. Look for the third way. There's always a third way, and that's the hybrid system.
0: Is there anything that we haven't yet gotten to that you think would be interesting to get to or wanted to cover?
1: I guess uh, everybody should keep really safe. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's going to be okay. And we're certainly trying our hardest to, to come up with solutions and help cross connect people and solve COVID and you know, caring about your family and everybody around you.
0: Is there, any, um, is there anything you uh, disagree on relative to the topics that we, we talked about today? You guys obviously know each other super well, um, but any sort of interesting adri- disagreements that are worth uh, teasing out? That prediction on the, um, the state of humanity, will we end up in
1: a stable state of, of numbers of people? Or will we end up, I mean, I do agree, believe it will go to a stable state. I think me and Emma might have a disagreement in how many people will end up on the Earth. <laughs> As how in the prediction people, models, yeah.
2: How many people do you think will end up on Earth?
1: I really don't know. I got a feeling it's going to be 10x more than than your number. So well, I'll, like I'll go the for whole, it. Yeah.
2: The whole of the Western world is contracting. Uh, even the second differential in India is like down. Like, I don't know where, where are these people going to be? Like Africa is like the only, only continent that's growing. And like, uh, there's like a very obvious trend that uh, as people get richer oh. and they get like more move into cities and out of farming that, they stop having babies. So
1: I not with the United States, right? The United States is not contracting. The United it is, States
2: is actually it. the only people that are having babies in the United States is immigrants. Uh, if across yeah, but like, the population
1: parts, of, yeah.
2: If you if you remove Sorry, like, immigrants completely, like if no one was coming into the U.S., I'm not, not removing anyone. Yeah. So so I'm just. No,
1: but I'm this just, is people uh, coming
2: yeah. from other parts of the world. That's not like that's not a good way. Yeah.
1: To, uh, no, but the, the actual population in the USA is climbing steadily, and the actual only population because, only because of
2: immigrants like that's it's not yeah i'm not saying i'm
1: not saying that that's not the case i'm just saying the population of all these countries is increasing and the population of the world is increasing
2: japan's population is shrinking um the uk population i think is flat um
0: uh, I- like, why is it important for you this d- distinction of, of, of immigrants oh
2: i think it's uh, well because immigrants like i mean like that's not a they're coming from somewhere else like that's not extra people being born in the u.s and i think this is like a very big Fundamental thing that I think people have this like slightly defeatist attitude, where they're like, uh, it's like a bit of a zero sum attitude, where they're like, there'll be more and more humans, and we're not going to have enough resources, and we run out. I'm very much a believer that like there's going to be less people, and we're going to have technology, and we're going to have a massive abundance of resources, and like I think that's and that mentality is really important to have. Like if you're thinking about abundance, it's like a very different mentality than thinking about like we're resource constrained and like we need to protect our resources and i think the reality is we've already created a lot of abundance in the last 100 years with technology like you know we we are all living like kings compared to people 100 years ago and i think in 100 years from now we going to be people are going to be living in like uh, even even more like kings than we do now uh, so i think like that's where the world is going and i think that mindset is like important to have
1: yeah, I mean, to, to go through a few of those things, the UK population is not decreasing, the UK's population is increasing, the USA's population is increasing. I'm not I'm not saying where it comes from. Most of the countries are increasing. Japan is decreasing. Russia is like steady state. South Korea is starting to kind of tend off a bit. So we we may see we probably will see at some point a tending off of all, of all the different populations. But even right now, and by the way, I'm, I'm pro technology, I'm pro I don't. I don't want to short human ingenuity. I'm. I'm actually very positive about these solutions. But we have real problems right now that people don't have the resources. I don't think most of the people in the USA live like kings. Um, we live like relative kings, possibly to, you know, a dark ages 15th century peasant who can just about get by and may not get by through the winter. Um, but I think we got serious lack of resources. At least in terms of the distribution of resources, is, is, is a serious problem, and I think it's going to get worse. Um, and and I think it's just the on aggregate, we may be arguing on different bases. I there are more people, you know, that are gonna be some problems and poverty and stuff that I, I do I do worry about. I do agree that we're gonna come up with tons of resources and I think we have the technology and willpower to make the abundance there. I, I worry for the kind of the game rules of concentration of the abundance or the speed at which we get to the abundance, right? And I, I, I do wanna get there. I do wanna get to the promised land of this abundant utopian utopian uh world.
2: Yeah, I just I mean I don't think we'll necessarily agree right here. But <laughs> that was I think, I think we've been arguing a, about
1: this for years, right? <laughs>
2: there's there's definitely like a misallocation of that abundance. Like I yeah. think everyone in the on the world could be fed very easily, right? Like everyone yeah like yeah you know, there's people that are wealthy that like throw away like food that could feed like, you know, hundreds of people just individually even. So I think like there's definitely misallocation of like capital and kind of resources and other things but but the like the total amount is huge compared to like where we were uh even with population growth and i think it's only gonna get bigger and i think we'll come up with solutions for like how to kind of yeah
1: spread it better. We're, gonna, we're gonna get to sustainable it's like the interesting question is a steady state like how how many people will the steady state be in, on this earth and will it keep like climbing up and then will we hop planets and then we kick off a new graph kind of thing
2: yeah. I mean, if you look at most countries, I mean, it's, the U.S. is a big example of that. Like, it's just not very dense, right? Like, there's not, yeah. we could we could probably fit another 10x people in the U.S. That,
1: yeah, <laughs> that's the way I think it will go. <laughs> yeah, there's some interesting stuff around that. Um, that was one of the ones we disagreed on. I think it was one of the main ones, because we've been having that debate for a long time, and it's really hard to predict, like, where, like, what will the population look like in 50 or 100 years time of the world? Like, yeah. you know, where will it be? Totally. Yeah.
2: I think we're, whenever Jude and I are arguing, we, we we're always off the same page that we want to get a constructive answer. So it's always gonna yeah fun to, fun to have these arguments.
0: Totally, I, I I'm glad we uh, got uh, got some of that recorded. Uh, uh, Imad, Jude, it was uh, it was uh, fantastic having you both on the podcast. Thank you, thank you for for coming on. And recommend uh, startups and listeners check out uh, Golden and uh, and Mercury. Uh, guys, thanks for, for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, thanks Thanks so much. It was really interesting. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.